Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes adult language, discussions of torture, sexual assault, racial discrimination, anti-Semitism, and violence against children and animals that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Rick Stice looked out at the Nebraska farmland. The 29-year-old was sweating, but not from the June heat. It seemed like just yesterday he'd been happily married to his beautiful wife, blessed with three children. Sandra had such a kind way with them, especially little Luke. But that was before the cancer and everything that came with it. In just under a year, his wife was gone. Now it was 1984, and he was on the cusp of a new life, with a new wife. It had seemed crazy, but when Michael Ryan had ordered him to take a bride, he didn't argue. Ryan had been right about building a paramilitary compound. He'd been right about the money they'd made robbing local farms. He'd been right about so much. Yahweh spoke through him, and everyone who followed Ryan on the compound felt the same. Even the hogs seemed excited about the day's nuptials. His new bride, Lisa, walked towards Rick as Ryan nodded in approval. Even with Yahweh's blessing, it was hard not to be nervous. Lisa was nervous too. After all, she was only 15 years old. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into a white supremacist cult founded by Michael Wayne Ryan. Last week, we followed Ryan as he went from a long-haul trucker, fueled by prejudice and hate, to white supremacist guru, with an eerie hold over poor Nebraska farmers. This week, we'll cover Ryan's activities as he consolidated his power over an offshoot of the white supremacist group, Posse Comitatus. The organization, rooted in an extremely racist theology called Christian Identity, was used by Ryan to justify the torture and violence he inflicted on his followers. Just over a year after meeting Posse Comitatus' leader, James Wickstrom, 36-year-old Michael Ryan embraced the man's message wholeheartedly. He began claiming to be the archangel Michael sent by his version of God called Yahweh. He drew a small number of the group's members into his sphere and eventually convinced them to believe in his holy connection, too. At first, Ryan purported to be scared when he heard Yahweh's voice. 
In the autumn of 1983, he decided God was reaching out to him personally, saying he loved Ryan, telling Ryan he was the chosen leader of God's army. According to Ryan, Yahweh proclaimed Wickstrom would soon be killed, and he would rise to replace the reverend. It's a matter of debate whether Ryan actually believed he was hearing the voice of God. Some believe he was only claiming to hear voices as a tool to manipulate those around him. But it's also possible he was experiencing auditory hallucinations. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. If the hallucinations were genuine, they were likely symptomatic of a larger mental illness. In his article, How to Recognize Important Warning Signs of Schizophrenia, psychiatry specialist Dr. Robert James explained that auditory hallucinations are the most commonly reported hallucination. In fact, according to a study by the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, an estimated 70 to 80 percent of people with schizophrenia hear voices. On top of that, psychologist Dr. Julian Leff asserts that subjects may hear voices which they believe are coming from God or angels. If the subject has a religious structure to their delusions, this will play an important part in legitimizing the messages coming from the voices. Whether Michael Ryan's horrific actions were driven by genuine mental illness or simply a sadistic controlling mind would later be questioned. But in the early winter of 1984, for those in Ryan's inner circle, his connection to Yahweh was a certainty. For the past few months, the small group of farmers had been hard at work doing his bidding. At Ryan's direction, they were preparing for the imminent apocalyptic war. Ryan believed he would lead the charge against Satan and the Jewish people in a battle he dubbed the Battle of the Wheatfields and what began as scattered burglaries of local farmhouses to pillage supplies for Yahweh's army had grown into a tightly organized operation. The band of struggling farmers, outfitted in camouflage with machetes on their belts, targeted mid-sized farms all over Nebraska and Kansas. These self-appointed soldiers of Yahweh were only a handful of true believers at first. There was Jimmy Haverkamp, a gun enthusiast and doomsday prepper, David Andreas, an outgoing Bible thumper, Rick Stice, a broken hog farmer who just lost his wife, and James Thim, a shy young man who was often the target of Ryan's teasing and scorn. Ryan never forgave Thim for accidentally discharging a semi-automatic rifle one night before a raid, nearly shooting his daughter, Mandy. All their movements were vetted by Yahweh via Michael Ryan. Because of this, the men believed the crimes were beyond reproach. Ryan channeled their spoils into more guns and supplies. Radios, hard hats, rifles, bullets, military rations, rolls of barbed wire fencing, and stacks of ammunition. They stored it at Rick Stice's farm in Rulo, Nebraska, an army camp waiting for its army. But by the early summer of 1984, Michael Ryan's doomsday squad had grown into something even more foreboding, a family business. At first, 15-year-old Dennis Ryan had been afraid of his father's talks with Yahweh. As any headstrong teenager might be, Dennis was skeptical of Ryan's prophecies. 
But also, like many boys his age, Dennis feared his dad, looked up to him, and often sought the man's approval. In time, Dennis Ryan was conscripted into Yahweh's army, too. He started by making trips to gun shops with his father to prepare for the coming war. Soon, he was fuming with hatred for black and Jewish people, even if he couldn't articulate why. Ryan's initial followers similarly recruited their family members. Jimmy Haverkamp's 29-year-old sister, Cheryl, joined the men for Saturday Bible study. Then she roped in her parents, Maxine and Norbert, who brought along their younger children, Lisa and Danny. All of them pledged loyalty to Yahweh. Michael Ryan led the sessions and was eventually preaching the sort of barn burner sermons his mentor, James Wickstrom, was known for. And with the new recruits, his message was hitting home. Jimmy Haverkamp's sister, Cheryl, had always been a trusting sort, perhaps even a bit naive. The intense picture of the Battle of the Wheatfields Ryan painted frightened her, but the concept of Yahweh broadcasting his preparation strategy through Ryan made her feel safe. Behavioral neuroscientist Dr. Shmuel Lisek asserts that for some people, there's actually something appealing about the end of the world. For some apocalyptic believers, finding a group of like-minded fatalists is actually reassuring. There may be comfort in being able to attribute doom to some large cosmic order. Intentionally or not, Michael Ryan continued to stoke that fire in those around him. With every gathering, he drilled his message in over and over again. We can't wait to get ready. Yahweh demands we act now. For these new converts, it was the arm test that was most instrumental in bringing them around to his vision. Any fear they had, any doubt they expressed, was easily countered by Michael Ryan's divine parlor trick. A technique taught to Ryan by his mentor, Wickstrom, a subject would extend their arm, and Ryan would push down and ask a question. According to Wickstrom, if the arm gave, Yahweh had answered no. If it held steady, Yahweh had answered in the affirmative. Ryan used the test to end any argument before it began. When he took an interest in Cheryl, he told his wife Ruth that Yahweh insisted he take her as a second wife. Ruth was less than enthused to hear this prophecy, and Cheryl was already married. But Ryan had a tendency to respond to Ruth's complaints by beating her, and she felt powerless to speak up. Ryan ultimately used Cheryl's brother Jimmy in an arm test to convince her to leave her husband. Ryan took his friend's arm and asked Yahweh whether he was meant to marry Cheryl Gibson. The arm held steady. Yahweh had spoken. Soon after, Cheryl and her five young children moved in with Ryan and Ruth at their home in Whiting, Kansas. Maxine and Norbert Haverkamp even gave their blessing. Ryan apparently convinced Cheryl that her actual husband was possessed by Satan and she needed to stay away from him for good. He used his wife Ruth's arm to prove it. Cheryl's husband, Lester Gibson, was blindsided when his wife took their children and left home without warning. The angry husband wanted to take Ryan's home by storm. He was in good company, but many members of Posse Comitatus resented Ryan. But people who knew Ryan cautioned Gibson against taking him on alone. One of them, who remained nameless in public reporting, cautioned, whatever you do, don't go near Michael Ryan alone. He's armed and he'll kill you. His best advice? 
gather a group of men and surround Ryan's home, armed and ready. Demand Ryan send the Gibson children out, then kill whoever's left. The suggestion made Lester Gibson sick. As much as he wanted Cheryl back, he couldn't risk the lives of his children. A few weeks later, against his better judgment, Gibson went to Ryan's home by himself. The broken down house was deserted. His wife and children were gone. Coming up, Michael Ryan leads his followers to a compound in Rulo, Nebraska, and horrific tragedy. Now back to the story. 36-year-old Michael Ryan was gearing up for war. Throughout 1984, he formed a small militia, an offshoot from the white supremacist group Posse Comitatus. He told them to prepare for the coming battle against Satan, the U.S. government, and the Jewish people. In the late fall, Ryan moved his followers to Rick Stice's hog farm, two miles south of Rulo, Nebraska. Hoping to transform the farm into a paramilitary encampment, Ryan and his allies started storing weapons and supplies there. It was roomy, it was secluded, and according to Ryan, it was the perfect hideaway for 29-year-old Cheryl Gibson and her kids. This was important, since Yahweh had recently told Ryan that Cheryl was to become his second wife. He further specified that extreme security measures had to be taken at the hog farm. He boasted that there was a $50,000 price on his head because of his actions in the CIA. Naturally, there was no such bounty. It could be that Ryan was suffering from persecutory delusions. According to psychiatrist Stephen Gans, a persecutory delusion occurs when someone believes others are out to harm them, despite evidence to the contrary. Much like his auditory hallucinations, persecutory delusions are commonly linked to schizophrenia. On the other hand, it's possible Ryan was merely lying to induce fear in his followers. In the opinion of Dr. Lewis J. West from the Department of Biobehavioral Sciences at the UCLA School of Medicine, deception lies at the core of mind-manipulating and cultic groups and programs. But whether Ryan was delusional, deceptive, or both, his move to Rick Stice's farm was a dangerous step. The formation of his compound coincided with Ryan seemingly distancing himself from Posse Comitatus. His motives now seemed less in line with the specific beliefs of the hate group, and more about indulging in his control. Likely, Ryan felt he no longer needed the group, or his mentor, Reverend Wickstrom, to back him. He could get anything he wanted with the assistance of the preacher's arm test. It became ubiquitous on the Rulo farm. Vital communication with Yahweh still rested with Michael Ryan, but the others also used the technique to get answers. They even used it to answer petty questions about cooking, cleaning, and laundry. The arm test told Cheryl Gibson to set up a schoolhouse for the children on the compound. The same arm test determined the lesson plan. But though Yahweh apparently had opinions about the minutiae of daily life, his paramount directive was that they keep preparing for war. Under Ryan's direction, the group built barracks with bunk beds three levels high. They stored their camouflage and rifles in footlockers, like the soldiers they desperately wanted to be. Like good soldiers, they did what their general told them. Ruth Ryan slept in the same room as Ryan's second wife, Cheryl Gibson, without complaint. 
Ryan married other members together in Yahweh's name, too. Rick Stice was married to young Lisa Haverkamp when she was all of 15. As a part of his supervisory role, Ryan directed his followers to place a beat-up orange recliner by a window in the barracks. From there, he had a view of the whole farm. It would be his command center for the coming war. He bolted two holsters on a desk nearby and placed a 45 caliber in one and a 38 in the other. Every afternoon, the men gathered for target practice. On their off time, Ryan insisted they endlessly rewatch The Ten Commandments or Red Dawn, a movie where teenage survivalists repel the Russian army in a military invasion of the United States. Ryan became more arrogant and tyrannical every day. He doled out punishments of fasting and repentance at will, arbitrarily assigning spiritual transgressions according to his mood. When 26-year-old James Thim was late to a meeting, Ryan ordered he go two nights without sleep and clean a dirty hog pen out back. It hadn't been tended to since Rick Stice's business had gone under a year before. Two dozen dead baby pigs were inside. As time went on, Rick Stice became more and more nervous. In some ways, Ryan had placed Rick in the most precarious position of all. It was his farm they were using as a home base. And the more he expressed reservations, the more he incurred Ryan's and Yahweh's wrath. But even as Ryan harshly punished him, Rick couldn't break away. Perhaps on some level, Rick felt he deserved any punishment he got. He likely still carried some guilt over his wife's death. His failing hog farm hadn't allowed him to pay for health insurance. Doctors didn't catch her cancer until it was far too late. Author and licensed psychologist Dr. Guy Winch theorized, the use of self-punishment to reduce feelings of guilt is quite common. The more prone we are to feeling bad about ourselves and how we come across to others, the more likely we might be to engage in self-punishment. It was a terrible circle. Fueled by guilt over things they'd already done, Ryan's followers allowed him to torture them even further. Almost every day, Ryan's appetite for punishment grew. Every morning, he engaged Rick in a series of arm tests to determine which of the 11 children on the farm had misbehaved. Then Ryan would personally handle their sentences himself. Eventually, Ryan decided the entire camp needed more discipline. He assigned ranks to everyone in his circle. The men were privates. Rick Stice was a high priest. Michael Ryan was king. The king soon decreed that the men and the women be separated. Yahweh chose their clothing. In the words of author and former journalist Rod Colvin in his book Evil Harvest, the unspoken rule was, don't think, don't question, just believe. Ryan warned anyone who balked at his orders that he had mafia contacts. Challenge him, and a mysterious hitman would put a bullet through your head. Execution was just a phone call away. The kids on the compound were the most frightened, terrified of the man they called Mean Mike. He was the one who came to spank them for no reason. He was the one who was so cruel to Rick Stice's five-year-old son, Luke. 
One night, when Luke got into a tiff over a coloring book with Ryan's daughter, Mandy, Ryan screamed, he is of Satan. Ryan then knocked the boy down. He called the child a mongrel dog and made him a scapegoat for any bad mood. Rick Stice could do nothing to stop it. Other children started appearing with mysterious welts on them. The adults could only guess what they had done to anger Yahweh. As the summer of 1984 wore on, the abuse spilled over to everyone in Michael Ryan's circle. Maxine Haverkamp, the mother of one of his wives and one of Ryan's original allies, became the newest object of Ryan's attention. Convinced her husband Norbert was hiding thousands of dollars at their former home, Ryan announced Yahweh's decree. Maxine was to be his third wife. Maxine was hesitant. She already had a husband, and everyone at the compound had noticed the darkening of Ryan's mood. What would happen to Norbert? Ultimately, the wedding moved forward, despite her reservations. Maxine wasn't the only one unsettled by the affair. Rick Stice didn't think the marriage was right either, but Ryan was their king. In his mind, like the biblical kings of old, he deserved as many wives as he desired. Being married to Ryan came with terrible consequences. After the most recent wedding, Ryan told Maxine that Yahweh wanted them to travel to Omaha together. She resisted. But Ryan cryptically hinted that her real husband, Norbert, who was out on a supply run, would be in danger if she didn't do as Yahweh commanded. Afraid for her husband's life, Maxine eventually found herself in an Omaha motel room. According to Ryan, the two would stay there until Yahweh told them they could go. In other words, they would stay there as long as he wanted to. For two days, Ryan raged about what would happen to her, her husband, and the safety of her children if she disobeyed Yahweh. On the third day, scared for her life and wreathed in tears, she finally agreed to do whatever Ryan asked. In this episode, we've discussed Ryan's possible schizophrenia, but this act and several others color Ryan's psychological profile with a different word, control. Dr. Katherine Baker wrote in her study, Motivational Evidence and Relevancy in Rape, perpetrators view rape as a form of expressing control, anger, or sadism. This sexual violence is often used to demonstrate their strength, masculinity, and virility to other men, controlling the group even further. So this psychological pursuit of control contradicts the theory that Michael Ryan was unaccountable for his actions and was simply a victim of imagined voices and illusions. It could be. After Ryan's rape of Maxine Haverkamp, her husband Norbert returned to the farm with the supplies Ryan had asked him to pick up, a thousand bags of charcoal earmarked for making bombs. Ryan met Norbert with a loaded KG-99 semi-automatic leveled straight at him. As if from some kind of deranged western, Ryan fired the weapon at Maxine's husband's feet. While shooting, he lobbed a threat. This gun can take care of anyone who gets in my way, or Yahweh's way. Norbert had suffered a serious heart attack a few years earlier. Ryan promised to give the man another one if he failed to get in line. Still afraid of the consequences, Maxine didn't tell her lawful husband that Ryan had raped her. 
but it seemed no amount of control could satisfy Ryan. As summer turned to fall of 1984, Ryan alarmed Rick Stice by naming his 15-year-old wife Lisa as his fourth spouse. Rick tried to stop the union by revealing that the girl was pregnant with his child. In response, Ryan fired an uppercut into his belly. Yahweh hadn't ordered them to consummate their marriage. It was clear the bond between Ryan and his high priest was crumbling. New Year's Eve of 1985 was fast approaching, and Ryan planned to make a powerful statement to keep his army in line. As the countdown to midnight neared, Ryan announced his news. Those who questioned the will of Yahweh would be punished, and they would learn the error of their ways. The usually quiet James Thim was the only one to raise a question. He was becoming skeptical about the accuracy of the arm test. Ryan answered by proclaiming that James Thim, Rick Stice, and his five-year-old son Luke were to become Ryan's personal slaves. Thim's doubts, Rick impregnating Lisa Haverkamp, and Luke's whining was all evidence of their wavering faith. They were banished from the main house on Rulo Farm and forced to live in the South Trailer, forbidden to interact with the family. Nobody else questioned the punishment. It merely reminded them to do as they were told. Meals were brought to the banished group's trailer, and they were assigned menial chores. But no matter how dutifully they tried to obey, they couldn't satisfy Ryan. He beat them often, including the five-year-old. On more than one occasion, Rick Stice contemplated calling the police, but was afraid of what might happen if Ryan found out before help arrived. One morning that winter, Ryan entered the trailer and demanded five-year-old Luke Stice take off all his clothes. He called the boy a mongrel and shoved him out into the snow, demanding he roll around like a dog. As the naked little boy rolled around in the snow, his father, Rick, stood nearby, paralyzed, praying to Yahweh to make it stop. But Ryan had other plans. He then grabbed a whip and wrapped it around the child's neck. As the child gasped for air, Ryan's first wife, Ruth, watched in horror from the main residence. Finally, Ryan dropped Luke and the gasping, shivering child crawled inside the trailer. Rick Stice couldn't take any more. He had to get his family out. But his resolve was soon extinguished. As if reading his mind that night, Michael Ryan appeared in the doorway with a threat. If you leave this farm, I will hunt you down and kill you, and you will burn in eternal hell. Rick stayed put while Ryan continued to torture Luke over the next few weeks. Sometimes he'd come to the trailer and ask the boy to imagine what it would feel like if he shot him. One afternoon, Ryan asked another resident of the farm to fetch him a chicken. Ryan shot the chicken in front of Luke, splattering its innards over the boy's legs. He was known to force Luke to stick a pistol in his mouth and play Russian roulette until he wet his pants. Afterward, he'd always ask the same thing. You didn't think I'd shoot you, did you? Then one day, he did. Taking aim, pretending he was joking, Michael Ryan shot Luke in the arm, 
The boy curled up on the floor, blood gushing from the open wound. It had missed the bone, passing through the fleshy part of the arm. Ryan told Rick it was his fault. Yahweh made him shoot Luke because of his father's sins. Rick regained his nerve. He and his boy needed to escape. Inexplicably, Rick decided to flee the compound in the dead of night alone and return for his kids soon after. Clear of the farm, Rick rented a motel room in nearby Falls City, relieved to be safe at last. The following day, he traveled to Omaha, convinced the best way to help his children was to first get a job. For a week, he tried in vain to find employment. Frustrated and worried about his kids, he returned defeated to the Rouleau farm. When he got back, Ryan insisted Rick strip naked to prove he hadn't been secretly wired by the police. Ryan then radioed Jimmy Haverkamp and David Andreas. He had a plan for how to punish Rick for his escape. He instructed the men to bring him one of the goats from a pen nearby. Ryan demanded Rick prove how much he believed in Yahweh. Andreas and Haverkamp grabbed the goat by the head as Ryan moved in close to Rick's face and commanded he have sex with the goat. As a broken Rick accepted his fate, Ryan laughed. The other men could only pray to Yahweh that it would never happen to them. Coming up, Michael Ryan's sick torture and abuse boils over into murder. Now, the conclusion of our story. In the winter of 1984, 36-year-old Michael Ryan was using unthinkable torture to keep his followers in line on the Rouleau farm. What started as an outgrowth of the white supremacist group Posse Comitatus, Ryan's small group of followers no longer had much of an ideology at all. Now, they only existed to serve Ryan's sadistic whims. After Rick Stice escaped the Nebraska compound, only to return a week later, Ryan chained him to the porch to prevent him from leaving again. As the mercury in the thermometer dropped, Rick called out to Yahweh to save him. But nothing could save his five-year-old son, Luke. With Rick Stice emotionally broken, Luke became an even bigger target for Michael Ryan. Ryan threw the child against walls, made him eat off the floor like a dog, and flicked cigarette ashes into his open mouth. Luke eventually became so withdrawn, he stopped crying. Ryan regularly brought Luke Stice to the bathtub and demanded he pledge allegiance to Yahweh, nearly drowning him in the process. Ryan took photos of Rick witnessing his son's torture to incriminate him. As the weeks wore on, Ryan grew bored of the rote day-to-day torture and made it a group activity instead. One day, he corralled James Thim and Rick Stice into a bedroom and forced Thim to sexually assault Rick. Not everyone needed to be forced to participate in the torture. Michael Ryan's son, Dennis, began to emulate his father's behavior willingly. Ryan frequently told his son, remember, Killing is okay, as long as you're doing it for God. Ryan also claimed he would be killed in the apocalyptic Battle of the Wheatfields, and that Dennis would reign afterward in his stead. Dennis took the prophecy to heart and began trying to rule like his father. 
One day, as Dennis shot at sparrows out a window with James Thim, the two got in a petty disagreement. It ended when Dennis shot Thim through the cheek. As another follower patched Thim up, Dennis said, this is how Yahweh punishes. Dennis then filled the wounds with cayenne pepper and ominously warned James Thim, if he didn't shape up, Yahweh might kill him. By then, almost everyone had physically and mentally buckled under Ryan's abuse. Thim was feeble and haggard. Beaten and broken, he still believed Yahweh was his only hope for salvation. But no matter how hard he tried to please Yahweh, Ryan only bore down harder. Thim and Rick, who faced the worst torture, were caught in a vicious cycle. They were both disgusted by their own compliance in the abuse, but were too afraid to act on each other's behalf. Finally, in late winter, it all came crashing down. One afternoon, as Ryan viciously berated Thim in their trailer prison, young Luke Stice watched from the hallway, hoping not to become the next target. Satisfied with Thim's verbal lashing, Ryan barreled down the hall, violently tossing five-year-old Luke out of his way and into a metal bookcase. Luke's eyes rolled back in his head on impact. He started gasping and quickly lost consciousness. His father rushed in, frantically trying to revive him. Ryan didn't even break stride and needed to be called back into the trailer. Ryan took in the scene and shrugged. Shit, I wasn't even mad at him. That night, Rick Stice was chained to the porch once more. He agonized in the cold as his unconscious boy was taken inside the main trailer. The news came in hushed whispers from inside. His son was gone. Ryan ordered Rick to wrap the dead boy in a blanket and put him in a tub in the back of a pickup truck. Ryan then told him to bury his son in the field beyond the hog shed. Rick and Thim dug the boy's grave in the hard winter dirt while the other men watched from a distance. Ryan smiled and said, Look at that. It's the dead burying the dead. Rick Stice stopped sleeping after that. He feared that if he didn't find the courage to leave the farm, he'd wind up dead like his son. He implored James Thin to start thinking about doing the same, but Thim was still intent on making things right with Yahweh. Shortly after his son's death, Rick was tasked with going to a video store and renting a VCR and videotapes for the farm. Ever since his son's murder, Rick and Thim had been chained to the front porch with no way to get out. Rick took the rare opportunity to escape a second time, while Tim Haverkamp, another resident of the farm, was chatting with a video clerk, Rick made a break for it. This time, he didn't come back. Ryan wasn't too worried about Rick's escape. He expected the man to come crawling back like he had the first time. In the meantime, he focused all of his rage on James Thim. In April of 1985, Ruth Ryan cooked her husband a turkey dinner. As she took it out of the oven, Ryan remarked that it looked dry. He became convinced that James Thim had poisoned the turkey. To Ryan's nose, the turkey smelled like ammonia, 
and it had been stored out in the fridge by Thim's trailer. Ryan burst into the trailer for a thorough search. He found an ammonia-based cleanser under the sink and used it as evidence to condemn Thim. He made Thim eat the turkey. After a quick arm test, it was determined by Yahweh that Thim had definitely tried to murder Ryan. For his part, Thim had no idea what was going on. Ryan declared Yahweh wanted Thim off the farm and devised a plan to humiliate him into leaving. The next morning, he instructed David Andreas to escort Thim down to the hog shed and force him to have sex with one of the goats. Thim did as he was told. Then a group of men, Tim and Jimmy Haverkamp, David Andreas, Michael Ryan, and his son Dennis, met up in the shed to deliver Yahweh's final punishment. For an entire day, they brutally beat and raped Thim with a shovel, only taking breaks for meals. In between various methods of torture, Ryan made Thim sign over the deed to his car for Yahweh. The following morning, April 26, 1985, Ryan returned to the hogshed. James Thim could barely move or speak, but still, the torture continued. With Thim hung in a crucifix position, Ryan announced his latest message from Yahweh. They were to shoot off James Thim's fingers. Ryan grabbed a piece of wood and rested Thim's hand on it, holding the barrel of his Ruger AR-15 an inch from the man's fingers, he pulled the trigger. Thim's screams echoed through the shed as the bullet obliterated the tip of his finger. Ryan cautioned Thim not to make any more noise or things would get worse. His tormentors then took turns with the gun. Tim Haverkamp shot off Thim's ring finger. Dennis Ryan destroyed his middle finger, and David Andreas shot off the top of his thumb. Ryan accused Thim of working with outside intelligence agents and demanded he confess. Ryan asked Thim if he could feel the flames of hell, then stomped on his left arm, breaking it in half with a sickening crunch. Afterward, they broke for lunch. Over sandwiches, Michael Ryan told the men Yahweh wanted James Thim dead by 6 o'clock. David Andreas dug a grave in the back field with a tractor. The men then returned to a barely conscious James Thim in the hogshed. Ryan instructed his son to bring him a razor and a pair of rubber gloves. His next words were, Yahweh wants me to show you how we skinned people in Vietnam. Pulling the skin from Thim's leg, Ryan screamed at his victim. Did he finally understand that Yahweh meant business? With the last of his strength, Thim faintly mouthed the word, yes. Ryan brought his boot down on Thim's head, then jumped on his ribcage to be sure Yahweh's will was done. James Thim finally was dead. It may seem incomprehensible for a group of farmers to participate in such horrific torture, but according to an article by professor of psychology Dr. Susan Fisk, virtually anyone can be aggressive if sufficiently provoked, stressed, disgruntled, or hot, 
when given an environment conducive to aggression and prisoners deemed disgusting and subhuman, well-established principles of conformity to peers and obedience to authority may account for the widespread nature of such abuse. Ryan's followers were constantly stressed and afraid for themselves and their families. They were primed to view those who went against Yahweh's will as subhuman. In such an environment, they encouraged each other to take part in more and more violence. Ryan had them in such an emotionally vulnerable state, they were willing to do anything for him out of fear. Even so, Ryan may have realized he'd pushed them to a precipice with them's death. Afterward, Ryan temporarily dialed back some of his violence and instead sent his remaining followers on a manic robbery spree. Convinced they were untouchable, they stole piles of supplies in Nebraska and Kansas. Hardware, motorcycles, boats, even a Xerox machine. On June 25, 1985, Jimmy Haverkamp and David Andreas noticed swirling red police lights in their rearview mirror. That night in Seneca, Kansas, after all the robbery, torture, and murder, the two men were caught for not properly displaying taillights on a mobile crop sprayer. They'd recently stolen it for Yahweh. The men were placed under arrest. The stolen property led authorities to investigate the Rouleau farm. Inside the premises, the police discovered guns everywhere, loaded and ready to fire. Piles of canned goods, a military-style barracks, women and children who'd been declared missing by their families, and a recently transferred vehicle title from James Them. Ryan, calm and collected, had an answer for everything. He'd just been staying at the farm. He wasn't responsible for what had gone on there. Meanwhile, in jail, the spirit of Yahweh left Haverkamp and Andreas in a hurry. Ryan had sent them a message through an intermediary. It was their responsibility to suffer for their mistakes. Yahweh demanded it. But Andreas had started paging through his jailhouse Bible. One phrase kept leaping out at him, false prophet. On August 12, 1985, Rick Stice met state and federal agents in Hiawatha, Kansas. In his spring and summer away from Ryan, he'd gotten his strength back. After the initial search of the farm, police assumed Luke had run away. Nobody had said otherwise. Rick was there to tell the truth. Relieved to be free of his secret, Rick said the words that turned a robbery investigation into a murder trial. He's dead. Rick had no trouble telling them where to find his son's body. He dug the grave himself. Around the same time, David Andreas and Jimmy Haverkamp were starting to crack. They'd been in jail for over a month. Haverkamp was afraid for his parents, Maxine and Norbert, back at the farm. He knew what Ryan was capable of better than anyone. Andreas couldn't get James Thim out of his head. Far away from Ryan's influence, Andreas couldn't believe the cruelty he'd played a part in. It seemed so obvious now. They'd been lied to, and they didn't need an arm test to know it. At the direction of Rick, Haverkamp, and Andreas, authorities recovered the bodies of James Thim and Luke Stice on August 17, 1985. Shortly after, Michael Ryan was charged with murder. 
37-year-old Ryan went on trial in the spring of 1986. The prosecution and defense utilized different strategies, each presenting one of the contrasting angles on Ryan's psyche we've discussed in this episode. Defense attorneys pleaded insanity. Five psychiatrists claimed Ryan was mentally ill. Dr. William Logan testified he was schizophrenic. A county jail cellmate claimed Ryan would often pray out loud in one voice and answer in another, a symptom sometimes seen in schizophrenics. The prosecution argued otherwise. In their view, Ryan was a liar, adept at manipulation. Dr. Emmett Kennedy testified that sadistic tendencies drove Ryan to torture and kill. Not up for debate was his ability to draw others into his web. Police also arrested 16-year-old Dennis Ryan. He was tried as an adult and convicted of second-degree murder. Ryan's wife, Ruth, wondered how she'd let her son become her husband's victim, too. Ryan's second wife, Cheryl, couldn't accept Yahweh's angel was a murderer and underwent professional deprogramming. Ryan's third wife, Maxine, cashed in over $100,000 in insurance policies to keep Ryan from hurting her family. Ryan's fourth wife, Lisa, just wanted to finish high school. Jimmy Haverkamp and David Andreas were convicted of second-degree assault and possession of stolen property. They received 26 years in prison, but served half of that for good behavior. Rick Stice got a six-month jail sentence and five years probation. Michael Ryan was convicted and sentenced to death on April 10, 1986. He died of natural causes at the Tecumseh State Correctional Institution on May 24, 2015. He went to his grave still claiming Yahweh wanted his victims to die. Ryan left a horrifying and indelible mark on his followers. Though he's now dead, the groups that initially inspired his theology live on. Christian identity, the philosophy that Posse Comitatus embraced, continues to influence white supremacist groups today. Hopefully, tales like Ryan's can be used to prevent these dangerous ideologies from spreading any further. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on Michael Ryan, amongst the many sources we used, we found Rod Colvin's book, Evil Harvest, the true story of cult murder in the American heartland, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Cults for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Cults was written by Matt Flanagan, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 